Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, your word is truth. Father, may the words come from this pulpit this morning be accurate to your truth because your truth is our final authority as a church. In your words, there's life. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, would you send your words, please, to the hearts of your people to convict, to encourage, to change lives, Father to lead to people living more faithfully. May your words lead to salvation. Plant seeds, draw people to yourself through the gospel of our glorious Jesus Christ. Father, we need you now to help us focus on Jesus. Guard us from distraction. And may we see this time is set apart. And your word is no, is unlike any other book because you are the author and you are perfect. Therefore, it is as well. May we heed your message for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was 18 years old and a senior in high school, I had to get glasses. I had just got my braces off and I felt this newfound freedom to pursue the popularity that had always evaded me. And then I was told that if I want to keep my driver's license, then I need to get glasses. This was quite a shock for me. Uh, I wasn't aware that I had any problem seeing. I walked without frequently walking into walls, and, and I could see the cars coming whenever I stepped out to look both ways in the street. So it it came as a shock to me that someone told me I I needed glasses. I went to get my driver's license renewed, and and sure enough, the kind lady behind the counter said, read these letters, and found it difficult to pull off. I discovered that day that I am nearsighted, which means that objects that are close to me appear clear. But Objects that are in the distance are blurry to my sight. Now, as sinful human beings, we have kind of what I like to call a chronological nearsightedness. A chronological nearsightedness. What this means is that it's very easy for us to focus our attention and our energy on the things that are closest to us in terms of time. The things that are most urgent get the most attention, right? The tyranny of the urgent, it's been called. For college students, it might be the 15-page research paper that's due two months from now, but it doesn't get done until the week before it's due, right? For the rest of us, all the little fires of day-to-day life get put out first, and they're given priority over our taxes and we wait till things get down to the wire before we get that done. We're nearsighted with our responsibilities in terms of what comes first, what's most urgent. We take care of those things because we uh, can't see beyond what's right in front of us at times. But this isn't 
only true for our responsibilities. We have this chronological nearsightedness that affects the rewards we seek as well. Oftentimes we want instant gratification so that all we can see are the duties around us that will deliver pleasure the fastest, even if that means that the amount of pleasure and the quality of that pleasure are lacking significantly. We don't even give thought to the scenic route, right? Even though the scenic route would be beautiful, it would add joy to our trip. We don't even give thought to it because we'll gain two hours by taking the freeway. We'd rather watch the movie than read the book. Or we'd rather give money as a gift instead of taking the time and energy it takes to do the research to find a very unique and special gift for someone, right? Husbands, have you ever done that? Given a lot of cash to your wives, right? Because you didn't take the time to, to go out and do the research to find out what you really wanted, what would be special? We'd rather bark a threat of punishment to our kids so they'll be quiet for two minutes instead of taking the time to instruct them and guide them to obedience. When it comes to reward, we ought to be farsighted, focusing on the things that come to us later. But we are nearsighted and we just want pleasure now. What will give us the most pleasure now? You know, just, and it's little empty things a lot of times. We forget about the reward that comes. If we will be faithful now, they will come later. We need to be farsighted when pursuing reward because it is the rewards that come later that God promises to those who work for them now. God's reward will come later, and God's reward is the best reward. In our text this morning, Jesus shows us how to live now so that we will receive God's reward later. In our text this morning, Jesus shows us how to live now so that we receive God's reward later. So let's pray for some spiritual farsightedness, right? And let's get started. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Now, um, each time that the elders give me an opportunity to preach, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount together. Last time uh, I was preaching, we finished chapter 5. Uh, it's Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. We finished chapter 5 last time. This morning we begin chapter 6. The last half, just to give you some context here, the last half of Matthew 5 which is verses 21 through 48, dealt with a correct interpretation of God's law. The people Jesus is here speaking to had been taught a distorted interpretation of God's law, and Jesus was spending time overturning that teaching with the truth he declared when he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, right? I am your authority, You've, you've heard it said by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, but I say to you, and he would give the correct teaching because he is the authority as God. We have also determined from studying the Sermon on the Mount that the law is impossible to obey perfectly. We can't do it because there's, there's more to the law than just outward adherence or outward obedience to the law of God, right? It must come from the inside out. 
We get that from when Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you, you are uh, guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Uh, he also said, if you've ever had lust for a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So the heart matters to God. And there's, uh, we don't have the capacity because we're sinners and we have a sinful nature. We cannot obey the law perfectly. So we desperately need someone to obey it perfectly for us. This Jesus did. He came. He lived. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 says he was born under the law. He lived perfectly under this law during his life. And when he died, he died in the place of those who would believe in him. And when we believe in him, his righteousness is transferred to our account judicially in the sight of God for those who believe. So we need Jesus to be perfect for us. And we need to believe that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be seen through his righteousness by God. So he treats us as if we lived Jesus' sinless life because he died the death of a guilty man even though he was innocent. Matthew 5, 21 through 48 was dealing with the teaching of the law, right? What we should believe about the law. But now in 6, 1 through 18, Jesus is revealing how a person lives in light of a correct interpretation and belief in the law of God. He's dealing with how a person should live who believes and understands this law. So follow along with me while I read Matthew 6, 1 through 6, and then verses 16 through 18. Uh, this, this week, I'm not going to preach through the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to save that for next time. At least one full sermon will be dedicated to that. So this morning, I'm going to preach through verses 1 through 6 and then 16 through 18. So follow along with me as I read. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you that they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, our text today, we've got three points that we're going to explore. Three points that we're going to explore. Number one, say no to hypocrisy. Number two, say yes to discretion. And number three, say yes to the Father's reward, okay? Say no to hypocrisy, say yes to discretion, and say yes to the Father's reward. Pretty simple for us to remember today. 
So let's deal with the first one. According to Jesus, the first way we need to live in light of a correct interpretation of the law is by saying yes. I'm sorry, saying no to hypocrisy. Jesus makes it clear that hypocrites make a habit of practicing their so-called righteous deeds in front of others to be seen by them so that they could be respected and admired by them. He is most likely referring to the Pharisees here, those religious leaders of the day whose interpretation of the law, he just got finished overturning. And now he's going to overturn the example that they have set for the people that they're leading. Jesus says, we are not to be like these hypocrites. Now, as many of you know, uh, the Greek word Hippocrates was used to designate ancient Greek actors who would wear a mask on stage to characterize the part that they were playing in their production. These actors were pretending to be something that they were not. And in this case, these hypocrites who give, pray, and fast to be noticed by others, they are pretending to be holy when they are actually self-righteous and wicked. They're hypocrites. Now, we see several examples of hypocrisy in the Bible. Cain. Cain pretended to be a worshiper of God, right? But when he gave that offering, although it may have looked like it was him worshiping God, later on he was revealed to be a hypocrite when he killed his brother Abel, right? Cain was really a worshiper of Cain, not a worshiper of God. He was a pretend worshiper of God, a real worshiper of Cain. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, you remember their story, right? They sold their property and gave a portion of it to the church, and they held back a portion of it for themselves, right? But they acted as though they gave the full amount to the church that they had gotten from the sale, right? And they were pretending to be devoted to God and devoted to God's people, but they were really devoted to Ananias and Sapphira. Probably the biggest hypocrite would be Judas, right? Judas was committed to his hypocrisy. He lived as uh, one of Jesus' disciples for three years until he exposed his hypocrisy with a kiss that led to Jesus' arrest. He was a pretend follower of Jesus, a real follower of Judas. These people all had pretty grim ends to their story too, right? Cain was cursed, Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead on the spot, and Judas hung himself. Pretty grim ends to this crowd, okay? And because of that, we find it pretty easy, I think, to distance ourselves from people like that, to distance ourselves from guys like Cain and uh, people like Ananias and Sapphira and Judas. But in the scriptures, we see many examples of true followers of God who were also hypocrites, right? Do you remember Peter? Peter committed hypocrisy when he stopped eating with the Gentiles upon the arrival of those Jews from Jerusalem, and Paul had to confront him to his face? Hypocrisy. Or what about David? Right? When, when David was confronted by Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba, he showed himself to be a hypocrite when he demanded the death of the man in Nathan's story who represented him. Hypocrisy. All the disciples showed themselves to be hypocrites when they told Jesus that they would not betray him. 
But when they ran away, upon his arrest, they revealed themselves to be hypocrites. It's not easy to distance ourselves from this crowd, though, is it? Peter, the disciples, David. So we have to come to the conclusion that we all, we're we're all hypocrites. And so we all need to hear what Jesus is saying today. We need to heed his words. And Jesus gives us commands against hypocrisy here this morning uh, in three areas, giving, prayer, and fasting. So let's look at each of them in turn. First, giving. Giving is to be done without hypocrisy. When you are giving to the needy, Jesus says, do not sound a trumpet so that your giving is made obvious for people to see. This is what the hypocrites do. Rest assured, if you are purposefully drawing attention to yourself in your giving, then at that moment, you are not a generous giver acting out as Christian character for the glory of God. No, you're not that. If you're drawing to attention to yourself purposefully upon your, uh, during your giving, you are taking what should be set apart as an opportunity to obey God and sacrificing for the needs of others, and you are instead setting it apart as an opportunity to serve yourself to contend with God for glory. For the glory that he deserves and you don't. Now Jesus' description of someone blaring a trumpet to draw attention to this kind of giving, it's kind of comical. You know, someone you know, going out and, and hiring somebody to be like their musician. Okay, you just wait until I give you the cue kind of thing. It's, it's kind of comical. Um, and you know what? I... I think it's safe to say that I could probably go the rest of my career and never see somebody blare a trumpet before they give, okay? I think it's pretty safe to say. But the, the point here that Jesus is making, it, it doesn't mean that you have to do it in just big, huge, obvious ways. You can be a hypocrite if you're doing things that are subtle to draw attention to your giving or to whatever holy behavior you might be using to get praise for yourself. It can be very subtle ways. It doesn't have to be, you know, a trumpeter. If you're using more subtle ways to draw attention to your giving, then you've got the same hypocritical heart as the person who would hire out a musician to announce their giving. It may be that you want to be respected and admired, and you see the holy act of giving as a way to get that respect, Right? But instead of using a trumpet, you choose the perfect moment to give when you know people are watching. And it may be that you try to do it very subtly, right? But you know people are watching. You, you want to make it look as if you're not trying to get people's attention, but you actually are getting their attention. So you may you know, kind of turn the other direction and your, your hand might kind of be down here at your side and kind of slip it over like that. But you know people are watching and you know even subtle things like that will draw attention to yourself. There is a sense in which trying not to be noticed gets you noticed. You ever thought about that? Trying not to be noticed, being inconspicuous, is actually conspicuous. You get yourself noticed, right? And we use that to our advantage. We know that, so we use that knowledge to our advantage. I'm gonna read you um, an example, Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrates it like this. 
He says, I remember a lady who felt called of God to start a certain work, and she felt called to do this on what is called faith lines. There was to be no collection or appeals for funds. She decided to inaugurate this work by having a preaching service, and I was given the privilege of preaching at the service. Halfway through the meeting, when the announcements came, this good lady for 10 minutes told that congregation of people how this work was to be done entirely on faith lines, how no collection was to be taken, how she did not believe in collections or asking for money and so on. I thought it was the most effective appeal for funds that I'd ever heard. I'm not suggesting she was dishonest. I am quite sure she was, but she was very apprehensive. There is a way of saying that you do not announce these things, which just means that you are announcing them. Oh, how subtle it is. It is not always that there is an obvious trumpeter, but when we truly come to examine our hearts, we find that there are very subtle ways in which this same thing can be done. Church, we can be masterful at drawing attention to ourselves without people thinking that we are doing so. Hypocrisy is dangerous because really it is so very deceptive. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, hypocrisy takes a gift. You're giving a gift. It takes a gift and makes it a purchase. Hypocrisy takes a gift and makes it a purchase, meaning that the man who gives to acquire praise is not helping the poor as much as he's using the poor to help himself, right? He is buying respect and admiration with his gift. Some of us have been doing small, inconspicuous things to draw attention to ourselves for so long that we don't even realize we're doing it anymore. I mean, Hebrews 3.13 explains that we can become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened, desensitized. Sin leads us to believe that if we play the game, if we look the part in terms of Christianity, then we're doing our duty and we forget what Jesus taught earlier in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, right, if you're angry, if you're angry with your brother, you have the heart of a murderer. If, you're, if you have lust in your heart for a woman, then you have the heart of an adulterer, right? God is concerned with what we do. Yes, he is. He is concerned with what we do, but he is also greatly concerned with the condition of our hearts and our motivations. We need to start asking ourselves more questions. Asking ourselves why we do the things we do when we're around people. Why did, I, why did I say that? You know, why did I say it like that? Or why did I do that at that time and not another time, right? We need to, we need to be suspicious of ourselves, church. We're so suspicious of other people. And we, we, we kind of watch people and we attribute motive to people so often. And we think, oh, that looks shady or sketchy. But we, first and foremost, I think we need to be suspicious of ourselves, not so trusting of ourselves that we are good from the inside out. We, we do hypocritical things all the time. I started thinking about this. And a lot of this sermon, I started asking myself, why do I do this or that? Things that I commonly do around people. I, I think if, if we start asking ourselves these questions on a regular basis, we'll be shocked at some of the things that we do in order to acquire respect and admiration from people. We need to ask ourselves questions and be suspicious of ourselves. Hypocrisy 
can show up in the form of giving, but also in our public prayers. Our public prayers. Here Jesus says that the hypocrites stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to pray so that they will be seen by others. This they do to receive the respect and admiration that they desire. Now, it was not an uncommon thing for people in Jesus' day to stop and pray on the street corners, especially if that's during a time of prayer. But the Greek word for street in this verse refers to a wide street, a wide street that would often be heavy with traffic. So hypocrites were sure to get a large crowd for the praying show that they were putting on. And praying in the synagogues was extremely common, given that that is where the Jews worshiped most often. But still, he's saying, he's not saying that we can't pray in public. He's not saying that. He's saying, but your motivation for doing so should not be to acquire attention. Our motivation for praying in public should be pure, should be God-glorifying. We frequently, however, use prayer to put on a display of holiness that other Christians will be impressed by and as a result, think highly of us, right? I use prayer to do this. Again, you don't have to be obvious in your prayers as praying on the street. It doesn't have to be that obvious to stand on the street corner and pray, right? It can be subtler than that. We can, we can draw attention to ourselves through our prayers when we're praying with another individual, we can do it uh, when we're praying in a group of people, maybe at, in, in one of your Bible studies or the prayer and praise nights that we have here at Calvary Bible Church. You can use those as opportunities to try and impress people with your holy prayers or your eloquent prayers. Isn't it true that when we're praying in public or we're praying around people, oftentimes we're thinking more of the person we're praying in front of than we are thinking about the God who we're praying to or supposed to be praying to? Many of us, I'm guilty of this, many of us have memorized phrases that we hear other people using in their prayers. And those phrases sound nice to us. They sound super holy to us, don't they? Little phrases and fillers we can put in our prayers to make it sound like we are more holy than we really are. To make it sound like we're more devout than we really are. We memorize these little phrases to put into our prayers for holy effect, right? And and a lot of times when we're praying in front of somebody or in a group, we know we've hit the nail on the head whenever the person next to us goes, yes, Lord, oh, yes, or "Mm mm-hmm. You know, we pray to get that sometimes, and we know, yeah, I'll I'll use that one next time. I'm going to put that in my back pocket and save it for later, right? We do that at times, and it's hypocritical. Prayer should be communion with our loving God and Father, an expression of humility and dependence upon him. But we've turned it into a tool for our own glory a lot of times. John MacArthur says concerning hypocrisy in prayer, nothing is so sacred that Satan will not invade it. Nothing is so sacred that Satan will not invade it. Uh, it's not off limits. When you walk through those doors and you're here, uh, you're hearing the preaching of God's word, you're singing worship songs, there's prayer. Just because we are believers and we're gathered here for worship does not mean this is off limits for Satan or our own flesh for that matter, right? I mean, I, I don't think it's wrong to say, I, I think it's actually safe to say that Satan takes great delight in coming between us 
and our God in terms of the communion we get through prayer. God gives us blessing and spiritual growth through the discipline of prayer. And if he can insert hypocrisy into that equation, then we don't get the fellowship that God desires us to have with him. Hypocrisy. It shows up in our prayers publicly. It can also show up in fasting. It's the third example that Jesus uses. And he says that hypocrisy can infiltrate these acts of Christian devotion. Hypocrites can also use fasting to do this, to draw attention to themselves. According to Jesus, they will neglect their appearance when fasting so that they look famished, haggard, and weak. They do this to make it obvious that they are not eating food, which onlookers will believe to be done for some holy reason, right? Like uh, preparing for some kind of ministry event or uh, mourning the death of someone important. You know, and, and really in a sense, drawing attention to ourselves through fasting can get us on the fast track, no pun intended, um, toward getting respect and admiration because um, we never find a direct commandment for the church to fast, okay? But it's still held in high regard by the church. And so we think maybe we can use this to help people think that I'm going above and beyond what's required of me as a Christian. So if you want to get the reward of respect from your Christian brothers and sisters, fasting is the way to get it a lot of times. And people do it to get the respect and admiration to be seen as holy. But you know, truly there are, th- there are a thousand different ways you can practice this hypocritical holiness that Jesus is illustrating. It, just, it doesn't have to be just giving and prayer and fasting. I mean, just, what is your holy activity of choice to use so that you draw attention to yourselves? What's your holy activity of choice? How many of us close our eyes when we're here, when we're praying, just in case anyone's looking, right? But all the while our eyes are closed, we're, we're napping or we're letting our minds wander, right? But we're closing our eyes because if anybody were to see, we want to make sure they know we're, we're praying. When we're not, what about singing? How many of us sing praise songs on Sunday morning without thinking about the words we're singing because we don't want people to think we're bad Christians? Hypocrisy. Or are there any of us who open our Bibles on our laps during the sermon for holy effect, but we never look down? We never follow along. You know, and, and we do this, we can do this on, a, dare I say, Facebook, right? We can, we can put up this holy facade on Facebook. I know, I know that Facebook is like every pastor's whipping boy, okay? And I'm on Facebook. It can be used for the glory of God. But, you know, at, oftentimes what we do is we give status updates or we, we post comments. And what we do is we sit back and we wait. 30 minutes, check to see if we got any comments. 30 minutes, did anybody like my comment? Did anybody like my status update? We, we crave the little thumbs up icon, Right? <laughs> I liked that. Somebody liked my reference to, to Romans 8 or my little tidbit about the footprints of God or something like that, you know? And we, we check, we keep checking back to see who likes us. We want that positive affirmation. I want people to think I'm holy, so I'll, I'll, make, I'll make it look like I really am holy. And then I'll use that for my own glory. 
I want you to look with me at a text in the Old Testament. Uh, Amos 5, 21 through 24. Let's turn there. It's after Joel, toward the end of the Old Testament. Amos 5, 21 through 24. This is God's response to his people who are living immoral lives, but still engaging in the outward ceremonial activities of worship. How does God respond to this hypocrisy? He says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the righteous anger of a God whose very existence demands the devotion and worship of everyone who has ever existed or will ever exist. And he's rightfully angry here. Every time we fake holiness to be seen by others, we are contending with this God for respect and admiration. This God who is justly and rightfully angry because his people are living immoral lifestyles, doing what they want to do, but they think by acting out the outward ceremonial activities of worship that they're still being holy or they can still be seen as holy. Hypocrisy. God will not be used. And that's what we're doing really, isn't it? When we're using these, these things he tells us to do, like praying and giving, we're using those activities that he commands us toward to get our own glory. We're using God. God will not be used. And that, I think this text is evidence of that. Let us fall in line, church, with the teaching that Jesus is giving this morning and say no to hypocrisy in our lives for his sake. So what does Jesus prescribe for us, though, when we are using holiness to receive this applause of man? His prescription is saying yes to discretion. It's our second point. Say yes to discretion, he tells us. Keep things private. Keep things discreet in your holiness if you struggle with this. In terms of giving, Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? This has been a confusing phrase for some people, but what Jesus is saying in here is, is actually pretty simple. If we struggle with hypocritical holiness, not only should we refrain from announcing it or declaring it so that other people notice it, but we should not continue to dwell on it in our own minds, in our hearts, as if we are giving ourselves like spiritual attaboys or pats on the back, right? Spiritual check marks to ourselves. If a need arises that you can give to, then give and then forget about it. That's, kind of, that's what Jesus is saying here. Just do it discreetly. Don't keep bringing it up to yourself and giving yourself spiritual attaboys. What you need to be doing is giving, then forgetting about it. And because what happens a lot of times is if we can't get respect from other people, then we'll just assume give it to ourselves. When you give, don't keep what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls a spiritual ledger, right, of your holy accomplishments like 
today gave this amount of money to needy person, you know? Don't, don't keep a record of your spiritual accomplishments. Maybe you don't have a journal or a book that says spiritual ledger and it's on your shelf, but you can do it up here, can't you? You can keep track of the good things that you do, the holy things you can do so that you are dwelling on it and you're giving yourself that respect. So be wary of that. There must be discretion. Let God keep the ledger, right? Let him keep the ledger. You just be faithful with every opportunity that he gives you. For prayer, concerning prayer, if we struggle with hypocritical holiness, Jesus tells us to go into our inner room, close our door and pray to our Father. There in your room with the door shut and no one around, you will not have the distraction of people you want to impress with your eloquent prayers. And, and an important point to make here is that Jesus is not saying that you cannot practice your righteousness in public. We should practice our righteousness in public. In fact, if he were saying that we shouldn't practice righteousness in public, he would be contradicting what he already said when he said, let your light shine before men so that they see your good works and glorify God in heaven. So that's not what Jesus is saying here, is it? What he's saying here is your motivation for practicing righteousness in public should be pure, God-glorifying. It, it shouldn't be, I'm, I am going to let my light shine before men so that they see my good works and glorify me. It should be, my desire is that they see my good works and glorify God, right? That should be your motivation. If you're doing these things with a hypocritical heart, then heed his words from early in the sermon when he said, if your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off, Right? Take some radical steps to removing the temptations in your life that help you pursue hypocrisy. Cutting off the hand here would mean removing yourself from an environment where the presence of people will tempt you to be hypocritical for your own praise, right? And the same kind of response goes for fasting, discretion. If you're going to fast, then wash your face, right? Then smile a little bit, right? And, and stop moaning with your hunger pains, be discreet about it. it. You know, and it goes for all these other activities of holiness. If you sing at church so that people will see you, then sit on the back pew where they can't see you. Be discreet. If you sing at church so people will hear you, then sit on the front row so they can't hear you. Right? Or don't sing as loudly. If you pray eloquent, fancy prayers to impress the people in your prayer group, then pray shorter, simpler prayers. If you use Facebook to draw out praise from people for holiness, then stop posting things on people's walls so that everybody can see and just send individual messages to people, right? The point is that if you struggle with hypocritical holiness, then be discreet with the activities you choose, you choose to draw attention to yourself. If you struggle with this, then Jesus is saying withdraw. Withdraw so God sees, but others don't. And if you're in a scenario where you can't escape people, then, then blend in so that they don't take notice of you. And Jesus says, your father who sees in secret, he will reward you, right? He knows what's going on. If no one else sees, good. God sees, and he's the one that we exist for, right? We don't exist for other people ultimately. 
Now, just, we need to be with each other. We, we need each other to help us glorify God, but we don't exist for each other. We exist for God. He's the one that we should be pleasing. This prescription to be discreet is not the ultimate cure, though, for hypocrisy. It helps, okay? It, it's, it's a help, but it's not the cure, ultimately, for hypocrisy. Um, it, it can put us, it can decrease the temptations we have toward hypocrisy, but it doesn't cure us of that hypocrisy. What's the cure? I think Jesus tells us what the cure for hypocrisy in our hearts is. It's the Father's reward. Say yes to the Father's reward. He gives us the cure when he says that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so it's not just any reward, is it? It's the Father's reward. The people who use holy activity in order to get praise and ad- admiration from people, they have the reward, Jesus says, right? They've got it. Okay, you wanted respect and admiration? Okay, if you get it, that's your reward. But that's all it is. That's, that's all the reward you get if, if that's what you're living for. That's all the reward is. And it'll soon be a fleeting thought. Maybe, maybe a, a fleeting word of praise and it'll be gone. What is it worth to you, the admiration of sinful humans, with whom you stand on level ground, by the way, right? What is it worth to you? They didn't make you. They didn't make you. They aren't in control of your lives. They didn't send their sons down to earth to die for your sins, to take your place so that you could be saved. They don't provide for your every need. And they haven't promised you an eternity and perfect bliss in heaven. What God thinks matters most, doesn't it, church? I mean, he's, he's our father. He's the one who made us. He, he's the one, he, he's told us that no one can snatch us out of his hand. We should care most what he thinks. That should be our focus. And you know what? When we strive for the applause of man, there is no guarantee that we're actually going to get respect and admiration, is there? There's no, there's no guarantee that we're even going to get their admiration for a second. But with God, you know who he is, and you can be sure that if you seek him his way for his glory, then you'll receive his reward. He promises it, and he follows through with his promises. Jesus is saying here, And if you settle for the reward of man's praise, then you forsake the reward of God. In that moment, if you settle for the reward of man, that fleeting, empty, temporal praise and admiration, then you forsake the reward of God. And you know, I asked myself, what is this reward? When I was studying this week, what is this reward? Started doing some studying, looking around. I'm not sure. I don't know what this reward is exactly. But you know what? We don't need to be exactly sure what this reward is. All we need to be sure of is who God is, right? Why is that true? We don't need to be exactly sure about what this reward is. All we need to be sure about is who God is. Because if we study who God is, we know the the reward will be delivered and it'll be good, whatever it is. We need to know that God is all-powerful. 
So we know he can deliver the reward, right? We need to know he is faithful so we know that he will deliver on the reward. We need to know that he is all-knowing so that he knows to make the reward something that will bring us deep and concentrated joy. We need to know that he loves us so that we know he will only give us this reward if it brings us deep and concentrated joy. And we need to know that his promises are true because he sent his son Jesus to die for us to make them true. It's believing in this greater reward that is the cure for hypocritical holiness. We must follow the example, I think, of Moses. I want you to look with me at Hebrews 11. I want, to, I want this church and myself to follow the example of Moses in Hebrews 11. Turn with me there. When we get there, it's going to be 24 through 26. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. I'm going to be like Moses. Follow along with me. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to, be, to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Notice how he says in 25 there, that he chose not to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. doesn't mean that sin isn't pleasurable. It is. But nothing compared to the reward that God has for us. Moses was farsighted. That's what this, that's what this text is telling us. Moses was farsighted in terms of reward. He can endure the reproach of Christ because he was looking forward to the reward. It is good to be motivated by this reward in living a humble and sincere life before the eyes of God because this reward is not separate from God. Okay, don't, don't feel bad about being motivated by reward that God has for you. Okay, I, I know that it feels maybe like you shouldn't do that, but Jesus is the one giving us reward as the incentive for living non-hypocritical lives here. So don't feel bad about it because the reward is not separated from God. It is his reward. He has promised it. He will deliver it. We have no reward without God. And that is why, if you'll notice in this text, if you flip back to, to Matthew 6, if you'll notice in this text, Jesus never mentions the reward by itself. He always says something like, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He always ties the reward back to the Father. The reward's not separate from God. It's all bound up in him. So don't, be, don't feel bad about reward being an incentive for you living lives of sincerity and truth before God. It's his reward. He promised it. He'll deliver on it. Church, we need to stop being so nearsighted and settling for cheap, fleeting rewards Pray that God would make you farsighted so that you will see and believe his reward is a reality for those who are faithful now. How do we become more farsighted though? How does that happen? I think, I think it's, it's what we just talked about here. I think it's 
meditating and studying who God is, right? We, because if we know who he is, his faithfulness, his character, his love for us, the fact that he secured all these promises with his son's blood, then we'll know the reward is real. It'll help to draw our focus outward instead of inward and affect how we live in the present. It'll give us incentive for living faithful lives now. I think we study the character of God. I think that's how we can become more farsighted. And I don't get that just by making it up. I get that because Jesus repeatedly in this text draws attention to the father being the one who gives the reward. He doesn't just say, hey, you'll get a reward. He says, the father will give you that reward. The father will give you that reward. He ties it back to Jesus. So if we know, I'm sorry, he ties it back to the father. So if we know the father, we know we get the reward because of who he is. Maybe you've seen the movie National Treasure. At the end of the movie, uh, after the main character and some of his friends have been looking for this treasure the, the whole movie, and, and uh, the main character's name is Ben, he's gotten laughed at by the historical community in Washington, D.C. for chasing after this treasure. No one believes it's real. He's kind of like the only one. He and his grandfather are the only ones who believe this treasure is real, and he's following clues the whole movie. At the end of the movie, they find the treasure. And they walk into this room, and it's maybe like kind of a little nook here, like a, you know, maybe 20 by 20. There's lots of treasure in there. And you know, they're, they're kind of smiling and everything. And ben takes his torch, and he lights what is this kind of canal of, of oil. And it lights fire, and the fire starts moving down this canal. And pretty soon, the the fire is lighting up this gigantic hall of treasure. It's beyond that room, far, far beyond that room. And there's this huge cavernous room of treasure that they didn't see before because there was no light. I think studying the father, knowing him more is the torch that helps us, the light that helps us see beyond what's right in front of us, to the reward that is in the future, that comes later for those who are faithful now. But let me remind you that living this way, a non-hypocritical life, a life that is sincere and devoted to God, that pursues Him instead of, pursues His glory instead of our own glory, this kind of life cannot be lived apart from Jesus. That's what we've been learning here in the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot live this way without Jesus. We cannot live this way without being saved by his death and resurrection through faith in his death death and resurrection. We cannot live this way unless we are his. We cannot live this way unless we are new creatures and we become new creatures as we believe in him. We're given a new will. We're given new desires so that we can choose to be non-hypocritical. We can choose to be sincere. We can choose to worship. We don't have the capacity to do that unless we have trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. And therefore, if we have not trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, we can't have access to this reward because God's not our father and Jesus isn't our savior. So if if you have not 